Alright, if you have a Bible, grab it and make your way to 2 Samuel chapter 24. We're going to finish Samuel today. It's really one book. It's divided into two books in our English uh, translations. It's really one book. We'll roll into 1 Kings next week. And likewise, First and Second Kings are really one book. Um, but we divide it into two in our English languages. Uh, so page 277 in the black hardback Bibles that are around you, if you don't have a Bible with you, we're going to be reading the whole chapter here in a few minutes, and so uh, you be helped by following along. As you're getting there, September 11, 2001 changed the world in profound ways. The way that we travel today via planes, security, checks, all this, forever changed. And so for like all my kids, they they don't know a pre-9-11 day. It's changed. And like so many of you, I can't, and like Alan Jackson's song, I can remember where I was at when, you know, I heard the news of September 11th. I was a senior at Georgia Tech. I was driving down 10th Street, listening to the alternative rock station 99X, which was like my jams. And they started talking about it. And I was headed to class and got to class. Sarah and I had class together and got to class. And, uh, you know, there's no understanding of what was really going on. Didn't find out for another hour and a half till we got out of that class what was going on. But what happened in the days after that event, the questions of where was God in that began. Where, where was God in that? This evil forced that question. And so people flocked to church that weekend. And churches, many, just filled with positive thinking, you know, ooh, diddly-widdly Ned Flanders thinking, had no answer. Like, on the one hand, they, they rightly wanted to preserve God's goodness. And so they trotted out answers like, well, God didn't know that this was going to happen. God never intended for this to happen. This wasn't part of his plan. And so in trying to preserve his goodness, and not wanting people to miss his goodness, we trotted out these lines saying these things at the expense of his sovereignty. But believers in here, listen to me, we're not in the business of defending God. He's like a lion in the cage, just let him out, he'll take care of that. So we're not about defending God, we are about displaying God. The truth of God, that yes, absolutely, he is good. And yes, absolutely, he is sovereign. Even over the tragedies. And as, as Jason was praying, I mean, I can't imagine a more terrifying place than a place where God is not in absolute control. I mean, that's one of the greatest comforts in the universe, that He is in charge, that He is on the throne, that He can't be stopped, that He's a God of grace and mercy. And so even when we don't understand what's going on, there's still purpose in it. Because think, I'm going to be asking you to do that a lot today. Think, seriously, what hope and comfort is there in a world where horrific things can happen just by chance and coincidence? 
where there's no purpose in them at all. What, what is comforting and hopeful about that? That there are things outside of God's control. And the only comfort in the midst of the worst possible pain of 9-11 or something that you face in your life is that there is still something there. That there had to be some reason that our pain is not purposeless, that God wastes nothing. That there's some purpose to it, even though we may never know it, see it, understand it. I mean, as one guy put it, what makes suffering sufferable in this world is not the thought that God had nothing to do with it, but the thought that God had everything to do with it. That like Joni Erickson Tata puts it, sometimes God permits what he hates in order to accomplish what he loves. The evil of 9-11 was something God hated. And yet he still allowed it. Why? I have no idea. And I may never know. But what I do know is that as hard and as tragic as that situation was or situations we face in our lives, they aren't outside of God's control. And in some mysterious way, they're even not outside of God's goodness. How do you know that, Joe? Because of this book. Because of the nature and character of the God of the universe. Because of the repeated stories of, and, and pictures of this throughout the scriptures. From Joseph in Egypt to Jesus on the cross. Where the greatest evil that could ever be perpetrated was perpetrated. The death, the slaughter of the Son of God resulting in the greatest good that could ever happen. Salvation being offered to anyone who would believe. And friends, as we come to 2 Samuel chapter 24, we have another one of these stories. Historically, what this chapter does is to show us where the land for the temple that we're going to get to in 1 Kings when Solomon builds that, where that land comes from. Historically, that's what this chapter shows us. But theologically, it shows us way more than that. Specifically, it shows us that God is God. And that pride is the mother of all sins. And that God's mercy is great. But in laying these truths out, boy, we travel into some deep waters. And so let's put our thinking caps on. And let's get started simply by reading the chapter. If you haven't been here for a season um, or ever, we, the, the last four chapters of Second Samuel are kind of like appendices. They are non-chronological. They're kind of tacked on to the end. Because the author is trying to end by making some very specific theological points. And he certainly does that this morning. So let's read together. Chapter 24, page 277 in the black hardback Bibles around you. This is the word of God. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he incited David against them. Saying, go number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and number the people, that I may know the number of the people. 
But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are while the eyes of my Lord the king still see it. But why does my Lord the king delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan and began from Aror and from the city that is in the middle of the valley toward Gad on to Jazer. Then they came to Gilead and to Kadesh in the land of the Hittites, and they came to Dan. And from Dan they went around to Sidon and came to the fortress of Tyre, to all the cities of the Hivites and Canaanites. And they went out to the Nagab of Judah at Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, which is just another word for prophet, saying... Go and say to David, thus says the Lord, three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will, fl- or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of men. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time, and there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arunah, the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arunah, the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. And when Arunah looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Arunah went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Arunah said, Why has my Lord the king come to his servant? David said, To buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Arunah said to David, Let my Lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Arunah gives to the king. And Aronah said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Aronah, No, 
but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. There's a text to take note of. Our faith should cost us something. If it doesn't cost you something, maybe it's not faith. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. And so that's the whole story from a wide angle lens. All right, we get the big picture. But now let's zoom in a little bit. And so verse 1 begins with this statement. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, Israel was God's chosen people. And they were constantly turning from Him, kindling His anger against them. It happened over and over and over as you read the Old Testament. But this time we're not told why. We're just told that it happens. And in reality, we don't need to know why. The reality is that every day in Israel, just as every day in the church, there are plenty of reasons to kindle the anger of the Lord. It's striking that it's not kindled more often. And so, it says in response to that, that God incites David to an action that is going to be the means by which he judges Israel. And so that's a bit confusing. God incites David to do this? And then you add to that the parallel account of this, which is found in 1 Chronicles 21. And there it says that Satan incited David against Israel. And then as we read in verses 10 and verses 17, David clearly says that he personally, by deliberate choice, had acted foolishly and willfully and sinfully. So, which is it? Is it David? Is it the devil? Is it the Lord? Well, let's talk about what we know, all right? First of all, what do we know? Well, the Bible clearly teaches That for one, God is not the author of sin. Okay, he never provokes his people to sin. He never tempts them to sin. James chapter 1 verse 13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And so if that's true, then how can it say that the Lord incited David to do something against Israel? Well, as you study this, these books, First and Second Samuel, and largely a lot of the Old Testament, but particularly here in First and Second Samuel, you find that the author has a habit of ignoring secondary causes. All right? He ignores those. He always just goes straight to the top when he's talking. And so, for example, if the author of Samuel was writing about an issue in the U.S. government, 
He would not say, hey, this is the State Department. They did this or the CIA did this or this one particular agent did this. He wouldn't do that. He would ignore all that and go straight to the top the president. That's the culture of the author of First and Second Samuel. He was not as concerned, and many people in that time, they were not as concerned as we are about levels of causality. And so they just go straight to the top with the understanding that ultimately, ultimately, whatever happens, God is God. That the buck stops with Him because He's God. And this is a complicated, difficult, really mystery we're going to get into. But I think the Westminster Confession of Faith is helpful here in how it summarizes this truth. And it begins like this. God, from all eternity, did by the most wise and holy counsel of His will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. So that's how it begins. Now it's necessarily going to nuance that in a minute, but that's how it begins. And just with that beginning portion, there's a story of how R.C. Sproul, who was a brilliant theologian and seminary professor, he passed away last year. There's a story of how he once read that statement to a class and asked that if you disagreed to raise your hand. And most of the class raised their hand. And so he said, okay, put your hands down. If you're an atheist, raise your hand. And no one raised their hand. And he said, you're inconsistent. Because all we're saying, like if you didn't agree with what I just read, then you don't believe in God. Because all we're saying, when we say that God by His most wise and holy counsel of His will freely and unchangeably ordained whatsoever comes to pass, all we're saying is that God is God. And that He rules the world. And that he orders history. And that nothing happens that is outside of his ultimate decree. He's in control of all things by the very fact that he is God. That's what it means to be God. And so that's the first thing I think we need to be reminded of from this text this morning. Number one in your notes, that God is God. I think we forget that. I think we forget the basics sometimes. I think we forget what that means, that we worship an eternal, self-existent, almighty, infinite, sovereign, creator, God. And He is ultimately in control of all things. And He works all things, even the horrendous and seemingly pointless, according to His ultimate design. But here is where the necessary nuance comes in. Because Westminster Confession goes on to say, Yet, so as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is liberty of second causes taken away, but rather it is established. In other words, at one level, ultimately everything is ordained by God. At another level, God permits the devil to tempt David. Now, the devil can't make David do it, 
He can only tempt David to do it. The devil has no power to make people do things. He can certainly make the possibilities and the circumstances conducive to his doing it. But at the end of the day, man is responsible for his own sin. Man is the author of his own sin. And so when we drill down through causality, again, the author of 2 Samuel doesn't deal with causality. He goes straight to the top. But as we drill down through causality, we see that the sinful acts we commit are not God's fault, but are an exercise of the legitimate moral freedom God has granted us. And we are responsible for the decisions we make and the actions we carry out. Still, those do not subvert God's plan. Friends, divine sovereignty does not diminish human responsibility. Neither does human responsibility diminish divine sovereignty. One author commenting on this truth said, This is admittedly a mind-boggling mystery. God takes our free decisions, even the most malicious intentions of humanity and demonic forces, and uses those decisions for a perfect plan. We cannot speculate how he does it, but we must confess that he does it. Remember, God's wisdom is infinitely higher than ours. Than ours. If we could understand all his ways, that would only prove his wisdom is nothing better than ours. If we could understand everything. If our God does not sometimes confuse and confound us, then we are not dealing with a God that's worthy of worship. We are instead worshiping a version of ourselves. And so let us examine our hearts And put a little less confidence in our ability to understand. And let us stop trying to make God so facile and one-dimensional. But maybe you don't like that. Maybe you feel that it's just too easy to chalk it up to mystery. When the Bible clearly says that Deuteronomy 29, 29, secret things belong to the Lord. But maybe you don't like that. Maybe you're like, God needs to explain himself. Does he? Does God owe us an explanation? Who's the creature? Who's the creator? Does God have to explain everything to us? Please remember, God is God. He's God, not us. Psalm 115.3, he's in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. And so he doesn't owe us anything. He's gracious to tell us things, but he doesn't owe it to us. It's only arrogance that would demand, God must say this to me. He must answer me. He's God, not us. And so, friends, he doesn't owe us anything. And he's in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. But what pleases him to do is kindness and goodness. That's what pleases him. Because, friends, not only is God sovereign... He is good. And so even though we may not understand how he does these things, we do know that he does these things and that God is going to work good in his sovereignty even in the midst of sin and pain and tragedy. 
God ultimately will work these things even if we don't live long enough to see it. But just because we can't see it doesn't mean it's not happening or that it's not going to happen. God's playing the long game that we just simply can't play because we are limited. We're finite. We're mortal. God's not. So I'll give you two illustrations I've historically used to kind of illustrate this. One is the story of the mayfly, right? If you're a fly fisherman, you might know what a mayfly is. But a mayfly, check me if I'm wrong, Daryl, has a lifespan of one day. Is that right? So it's born in the morning. It dies at night. Praise the Lord that reincarnation is a lie, right? That would be terrible. But he's born in the morning. He dies at night. And so mayfly flying around, buzzing around. He notices in the water a tadpole. He dies in the morning. He dies at He's born in the morning, dies at night. He has no knowledge or ability to know that that thing is going to become a frog. No, because he's, he's limited to one day. So all he can see is tadpole. What is that? That's a tadpole. That's all it'll ever be. It'll never become anything else. That's like us with life. We see this one thing because we're limited to our 80 years of life. 90 years of life. 100 years of life. We're limited. That's all, all we know is this. We can't see beyond that. We don't know how this thing's going to become. Or even with history is written down, we don't know how this thing's going to become. Or, another illustration, a movie, right? So, Angela, I'm seeing you looking at me. If, if, if Angela and I watch, let's say, let's say I watch a movie, all right? And Angela gets that fast of the movie. She just gets one little screenshot. And then we have a conversation about what the movie's about. Angela, what do you think the movie's about? Well, I think it's about this thing right here. It's not about that at all. This is what happens at the end. See, God is the one who's seen the movie. We've seen the blip, right? We exist on a tiny dot of an eternal timeline in both directions. We have no ability to see this is going to become that, but God does. He exists outside of time. He sees all of time at once, and He knows how these things are going to go, and He is going to bring good out of all the tragedies of the world. He's working all these things for His glory, for our ultimate joy, and the full-length feature film that He's building is beautiful, but there are snapshots, if Andrew seen, snapshots of pain. Because again, as Joni Erickson Tata said, sometimes God permits what He hates in order to accomplish what He loves. Or as we sang earlier, what the enemy means for evil, He turns it for our good. He turns it for our good and for His glory because He is God. And He has the power to do that. God is God. That's number one. God is God. He's not capricious. He's in control. And things are going towards a good direction. God is God, number one. Number two is this. I already told you, but number two is this. Pride is the mother of all sins. Pride is the mother of all sins. I mean, pride is what drove Satan to rebel against God in the first place. It's what drove Eve to say, No, God, you don't know best. This fruit is good. Adam and I are going to eat it. And it's pride that drove David to count his people. Look at verse 2 again. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel... 
from Dan to Beersheba. So it's kind of like a circle if we put a map up here. And number the people that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are while the eyes of my Lord the king still see it. But why does my Lord the king delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commander of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. And so David sets out to number his people. And shockingly, Joab speaks up and is like, David, what are you doing? This, uh, you're not sure about this. Which is crazy. Like, you know it's bad when Joab speaks up. Because if you've been following along at all, you know that Joab is just an amoral pragmatist. The, 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 the ends justify the means, whatever that is. So this is a guy who would not hesitate to put a bullet in your skull if it would help him accomplish something. No hesitation. And so for Joab to be morally alarmed, that's pretty astounding. But David dismisses Joab. He refuses to listen to his counsel. And so David sins. Notice this. He sins with his eyes wide open. Again, no one makes David sin. David, just like us, sins of his own deliberate choice. Eyes wide open. And specifically what David wants to know is the number of his fighting men. Because if he has a ton of fighting men like he thinks he does, then he's powerful. The problem though is that the number of fighting men has never been the source of David's power. God has been the source of David's power. All that he has, all that he is, is the Lord's doing. He took him from the sheep of the field, from being the runt of the litter, and set him over all of Israel. God did this. And yet now David has turned from God and is relying on his own strength rather than the Lord's. What about you? What about me? Could we substitute our name for David's here? We've seen how God's worked in our lives. He's done these things. He's brought us through these things. He's blessed us in these ways. But now, I'm good, God. I'm strong. I'll handle it. Now, lest anybody misunderstand, let me be super clear. Is it wrong for us to take a census or count things? No. Does taking a census necessarily imply a lack of trusting in the Lord? No. I mean, good grief. There's a book of the Bible called Numbers. Which is all about two censuses that God commanded that they take. The key difference, though, is that those numbers, if anything, were to show their tininess compared to mighty Egypt. Their dependence was on God and it was shown by their numbering. But now, under David, this is encouraging them to boast and to depend on themselves. And so, friends, hear me. Counting, like so many other things, is in and of itself morally neutral. But it's the how and the why that reveals our heart. And what has been revealed in David's heart at this time was a heart of pride. And like I said, pride's the mother of all sins. It's distorting. It's deceptive. Like everything you have today, like we just described with David, 
Friend, that's not you. That's a gift from God. He's done those things in your life. Do you realize that? And yet our days at home and at work are just shot through with pride. Are they not? I mean, we sit around and boast about our sports abilities. We boast about our grades. We boast about our education. We boast about our jobs. We boast about our salaries. We boast about our cars. We boast about our looks. We boast about our kids. We boast about our politics. I mean, we will boast about anything. We Christians can even grow so prideful that we will boast over our knowledge of the Bible or theology or the ministries we've been involved with. And so pride at its root is consumed with self. With thinking much about the self and thinking much of the self. And then because we think of so much about and of ourselves, we expect compliments and we feel entitled. And when we don't get these things, we feel insulted because I'm awesome. Friend, have you ever noticed how often the dissatisfactions in your life are actually directly tied to your pride? I'm going to say that again, because it is a good question to ponder. Have you ever noticed how often the dissatisfactions of your life are directly attached to your pride? But if we could just get over ourselves, joy and true growth in the Lord could be had. The problem with pride, though, is that a lot of times, because of our pride, we aren't open to correction. And so we stay trapped. Friend, can you see pride in yourself? Can you see pride in yourself? If the answer is no, then inherently you have a pride problem. And so that means all of us in this room have a pride problem. And so let all of us attack our pride. How do you do that? Well, you look to Jesus and you become a continual repenter. Because you are a different person when you are continually repenting. John Frame, the Famed theologian puts it like this. If you're going, let me restart. If you're coming to God daily to confess to him how much you've sinned, you will find it hard to pretend that you are holier than everybody else. You'll find it hard to put on airs, to pose as the perfect Christian. And friends, this frees you. This frees you. I mean, if we could build this culture in the church as we've been called to by Scripture then all of a sudden, quoting Eric Mason, a pastor in Philadelphia, nobody's trying to impress anybody anymore. Nobody's cool anymore. Nobody can one-up anybody because we know that we're all a mess but for the grace of God. 
We know that we're all in a difficult position, but for the grace of God. And when we look at the holiness of God, and we look at the sinfulness of ourselves, and we look at the glory of the cross of Jesus Christ and how He dealt with our sin and satisfied God's holy standard, when we come to the cross and look at the glory of the resurrection, we are on a level playing field. And it results in an attitude that doesn't become all gloomy and and downcast, but like C.S. Lewis once described it, We live with an attitude where we don't think less of ourselves. We just think of ourselves less. We don't think less of ourselves. We just think of ourselves less. And so David is convicted in his heart over his sin. And Well, I just jumped ahead a little bit. Verse 10, we see David, like this starts to take place in him. He... He, he begins to repent. And so look at verse 10. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And so notice, David doesn't have Nathan coming to him, calling him out. Hey, you are the man. Like this repentance arises straight out of his heart. He's convicted of his sin. And this is a mercy of God in the lives of believers that God brings conviction. And so David confesses, he repents. But forgiveness of sin doesn't mean the erasure of all consequences. So you look at verses 11 through 14. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you, choose of them, Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Here are your options. Option one, shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Option two, or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or option three, shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. And then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. Let me not fall into the hand of man. Okay, again, let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. Like, friend, take note of this. On the eve of coming wrath, David still knows that God's merciful. And so he flings himself on the mercy of God because his mercy is great even in the face of justice. And so number three in your notes, God's mercy is great. See, some of us have this wrong-headed idea that like the God of the Old Testament is just mean and angry all the time. Jesus is a super nice guy who, you know, like, like that's the idea we have. And so what we wind up doing is treating the Old Testament is like God's middle school years where he's all emotional and he's upset about everything. He's just literally insane kind of and he's just babbling away and then he matures in the New Testament and he's like nice. And friends, not only does this severely diminish the ministry of Jesus, but it distorts the Old Testament image of God. Because as David learned here is that the threshing floor of Aronah, the Old Testament God is the same, right? But he sees here that he's more merciful than we could ever hope. Because look at verse 15. So the Lord, like there's wrath coming, it's happening. 
Since pestilence, 70,000 people died. Verse 16, And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel, It is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel was by the threshing floor of Arunah, the Jebusite. Friend, do you see the mercy of God here? Even in the midst of judgment, even in the midst of justice, I mean, God has every right to flex his arm and destroy Jerusalem. Israel sinned. They've kindled his anger. But as so often happens in Scripture and happens in our lives, God relents. His, his compassion knows no bounds. And so on a day that could have been marked by solely death and disaster, God draws back his hand. And look at verse 17. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people, which is interesting in and of itself. But he said, Behold, I have sinned. So he's repenting again. I've done this. It's my fault. And I have done wickedly. I've done this. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. Now, remember verse 1. What's happening Like, who's primarily responsible? Like, God's responding to whose sin primarily in verse 1. Who made him angry? Israel did. Now, David's compounded that with his own pride. He's accentuated it with his own sin of pride. But it was Israel that started this whole thing to begin with. And so when David says, Let your hand be against me and against my father's house, what's he doing? He's acting like a good shepherd. Really good shepherd. He's asking for God's punishment to fall on him. He's asking if he could be a substitutionary atonement. David's great problem, though, is that he was as guilty as his people. He was willing to die for them, but he couldn't. But Jesus did. Jesus is the good shepherd. Jesus could and did lay down his life for the flock. And watch this. This is, a, this is an, amazing, it's an amazing thing. Like at the exact spot... Where God's wrath subsided. And God commands David in verse 18 to build an altar. What we do not see in 2 Samuel 7 is that this threshing floor, you know where it's at? It's on Mount Moriah. That's where Abraham came to offer Isaac. And God stopped him and provided a substitute. Here, God stops and He's going to provide a substitute. It's this sacrifice. It's going to be where the temple is built. Sacrifices. And then outside of this location, not far away, the ultimate once-for-all sacrifice that would cover all the sins of the world would lay down His life in an answer to David's prayer that your hand be against me and against my father's house, against my descendants. Jesus is the descendant of David and he finally and fully is the answer to this prayer. As the Lamb of God lays down his life and the shedding of his blood diverts the wrath of God. Instead of falling upon us, it fell upon him. And so from the first to the last, as we look at these books of Samuel, they're to point us to Christ. In Christ, we find not only an example, but a Savior. 
Someone who both humbles us in times of strength and gives us hope in times of weakness. As one guy said, Jesus Christ is the only king who, if we receive him, will satisfy us. And if we fail him, will die for us. Friend, this is our king. This is our God. And there is none like him. He's merciful. He's good. He's sovereign. And he's for you. If you don't believe me, look at the cross. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of who you are, that you are good, that you are merciful, that you are sovereign. And Father, we pray that you would fill us with hope. That you would humble us, Lord, when we think of the blessings that you have given to us. And that you would fill us with hope when we think of the trials that you lead us through. We thank you for the pictures of the gospel in the books of Samuel. And we thank you for their fulfillment in Jesus. And so, Father, now as we sing, continue by your Spirit to speak to us of your grace and your love, of your justice. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.